0: Welcome back to the Teen Challenge of Southern California podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know about a 24-7 prayer and help referral line that Teen Challenge of Southern California just launched. No matter what your need is, if you're anxious or worried or stressed, you can call anytime, any day, and a Teen Challenge staff member is there to pray with you. The number is 888-520-0620. Once again, that number is 888-520-0620. We're so glad that you've chosen our podcast today. We know that there's thousands of podcasts that you could be listening to and you've chosen to listen to ours and we thank you for that. Up next in this series are the brand new sessions fresh off the press from our very first Spiritual Emphasis Online. Normally this is an event that Teen Challenge of Southern California hosts yearly at our headquarters in Riverside where all of our staff and students gather under a tent for three or four days of powerful worship and teaching but because of what's going on in our world right now, we decided to take the event online and make it a completely virtual event. And what a week it was. We invited the Teen Challenge Centers from around the globe to participate with us, and it was just such a spirit-filled, powerful, life-changing week. We had messages from Don Wilkerson, Jim Simbola, Nikki Cruz, Gary Wilkerson, and many, many more. Lives were changed forever. Today, you're gonna hear a great word from Daniel Bentley, who's a pastor at Maranatha Chapel in San Diego, California. He's a great friend of Teen Challenge. As you listen to these sessions, our prayer is that you would sense God's presence, that you would hear his voice. And most of all, we hope that you're encouraged in the Lord today through these podcasts. Remember to subscribe today to our podcast if you haven't already done it. Be encouraged today.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us here for Teen Challenge Spiritual Emphasis 2020. My name is Pastor Daniel Bentley and I'm one of the pastors here at Maranatha Chapel in San Diego and was blessed not that long ago to go down to Teen Challenge and preach to the guys down there and just made a really great connection. Uh, with, with some of the guys and have gotten to know uh, some of the leadership down there and just I'm so blessed to be able to partake in this ministry with you guys. And I'm excited about the theme of the conference that you're all having right now, that Jesus is Lord of all. And if I could just get you to say amen to that from the top of your lungs on the other side of that screen, that would just be fantastic. So uh, since I can't engage with you. I just need to know that you're going to do this. I'll say Jesus is Lord and then I want all of you to shout amen. Jesus is Lord. Amen. He's Lord. And that's good to remind ourselves of, um, especially in a time like this, where we're facing these unprecedented times. There's a global pandemic and the world is in upheaval. But praise God that the things that are outside of our control, Those things are under his authority. Amen. And just as Jesus walked on top of the waves in the midst of the storm, those waves were threatening the lives of the disciples and crashing over the sides of the boat. Well, Jesus walked on top of the waves. He wasn't being taken down by the waves. And I hope that blesses and encourages you as it does me to know that Jesus is Lord of all. So with that, We're going to go ahead and jump into our time of Bible study, Um, and for that I want to look at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, and the title of my message for you guys today is A Tale of Two Paths. And I'll set the the study up like this. When I was young, there were these books that were popular. They were known as choose-your-own-adventure novels, and they were popular back in the 80s and 90s. Um, The idea was invented by a guy named Edward Packard and he was usually a pretty creative guy, and so he liked to tell his kids goodnight stories, Um, but one night he was just tired from a long day at work, and so in the middle of his story, um, he, he pitched an idea to them. Why don't you guys tell me where you think the story should go next? And so they kind of pivoted and dictated where the story went from there, and off they went, and an idea was born in his head at that moment. This idea for an interactive book series where the the one reading the book could determine where it went. And so that's what he came up with, these choose your own adventure novels. And I can remember just gobbling those things up as a kid. And for example, you would come to the bottom of a page and it would say in the book, you come upon a closed door. If you wanna walk through the door, turn to page 12. If you wanna run away from the door and down the hall, then turn to page 24. And so then you would make your choice and either go through the door or run away. and you got to be in charge of the story, which was the really cool thing about those books. You were not only reading the book, but you were actively engaging with it. You were in charge of the, the narrative or the arc of the story. And you had to choose carefully, though, because some of those choices, if you chose wrong, it would end in death. And so uh, with each choice you made, the book would remind you, choose carefully, because once you've chosen, you can't go back and unchoose it. Now, of course, that never stopped me or most other people who read the books from going back and unchoosing things when we didn't like the way that they played out. And what I would typically do is I would go through and read all of the different endings of the books. And some of them are there were quite a few, as many as 38 different endings. And I would lay all, all the endings and I would pick the one that I liked the best. And here's the reason I bring that up. As I, I think about this particular psalm, which is going to lay out for us these two paths that we can choose to walk down, it got me thinking, man, wouldn't that be great if real life worked like those choose your own adventure novels, where we could lay out all of the paths and all of the choices and all of the options that life presents us with, and then we could see how each one of those choices was going to play out, and then we could pick the one that we liked best? For that matter, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you had chosen something or gone down a path and then you didn't like the way it played out and so you could turn around and unchoose that thing. It would be wonderful, of course. But we know life doesn't work like that, right? What's been done has been done, what's been chosen has been chosen, and what's been said has been said. And our choices, we make our choices in the beginning, but in the end those choices end up making us. So it's hard. We have to deal with the consequences. But even that being said, one thing I'm here to remind each and every one of you of is this idea that even though we can't go back and undo things that have already been done, that doesn't mean we can't change the narrative or the arc or the trajectory of our story moving forward. You see, at the end of the day, each and every one of us is in charge of how our story plays out. And that's just really wonderful news. And here's why. It means that if you, if I, if we don't like the way that our story is being told or playing out, then we can choose a new path. And that's what we see here in Psalm 1. You see, in Psalm 1, we're presented with a choice between two paths. And these two paths, I'm defining them as the path of the righteous or the road of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So we have these, these two paths. Now, By the way, I love the simplicity of that. Just two simple choices, the road of the righteous or the way of the wicked. We don't have to worry or bother with 38 different options. God keeps it tremendously simple for us in giving us just two options. By the way, I think this is what I love about the menu at In-N-Out Burger. I mean, it's so beautifully and wonderfully simple, right? You can get a single burger, a double burger or a hamburger. And that's it, right? There's no like hemming and hawing, thinking and picking and choosing. It's just tremendously and wonderfully simple. And God does something like that here for us. He says there's not 38 different flavors. There's two options. And, and these two options, they get presented to us in a variety of different ways throughout the scripture. For example, in Genesis, God gives Adam and Eve a choice between two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says to his people, I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. And as if that weren't enough, God says, now let me help you make the right choice. Choose life, he says, that you might live. Then in the book of Proverbs, the author lays out these distinctions between the path of wisdom and the path of folly. Then you come all the way to the New Testament and we find Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, laying out these two choices in a variety of ways. He talks about two roads, the wide road and the narrow road. Two gates, two destinies, two paths. Which path will we walk down? That's the question. Let's go ahead and and read through this this first psalm and, and then we'll go back and discuss it. He writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. That person is like a tree planted by the rivers or streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So here we have this introductory psalm. It's been called the Gateway Psalm because it opens the door to all the psalms. And in the outset, the psalmist begins by telling us that the road of the righteous is the blessed path. He says, oh, how blessed is the man, is the woman who walks in this way. And by the way, that word for blessed, it's written in the plural tense in the Hebrew language. So we might better translate that first sentence, oh, the many blessings. And the word blessed can also be translated a happiness. So it might be, it might rendered, you could render it this way. Oh, how very, very, very happy is the man or the woman who. So this, this is how it's setting up. The Psalmist is saying, Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to live a happy life, a God-saturated life? Do you want to prosper in all that you do and be fruitful? Do you want to flourish? Then this is how you do it. He says, blessed is the man who what? Does not walk in step with the wicked. So in other words, the first thing that we need to note is if we want to walk the road of the righteous, then we need to pay close attention to the people that we're hanging out with. And for good reason. It's been observed by many that over time, we kind of become like the people we spend the most time with. And that's true on the positive side, and it's also true on the negative side as well. The Bible is clear. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so if you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, then it's gonna have a negative impact on the way that you're wanting to walk, on the way that you're wanting to do life. And for better or worse, our lives get shaped by the company we keep. As one person said, and I like the way he said it, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So again, just driving home this idea that we need to be careful who we surround ourselves with because they have a tremendous influence on the kinds of people that we're ultimately becoming. Which is why the Proverbs say, The righteous choose their friends carefully. Let me say that again. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's Proverbs 12, 26. Now, there might be some of you out there who are sitting there and thinking to yourselves, well, I don't know that I totally agree with that. Because just because I'm hanging out with a group of people that is not necessarily You know, walking with the Lord, it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to end up doing the same things and partaking in the same activities that they're partaking in. And you might have a point, but what experience has shown me over the years is given enough time, when you hang out with people who are walking in a self-destructive manner, it's just a matter of time before you're partaking with them in those same activities. If you don't believe me, Just go back to the Bible and ask Peter. Remember Peter and his story and how he was confident, he was sure of himself, and he thought, there's no way I would ever deny my Lord. He even bragged about it in front of the other disciples. He said, Jesus, those guys might all deny you, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm your guy. I'm your rock. Famous last words, right? If you know the story, you know that that's exactly What ended up happening with Peter? He denied his Lord. But how did it happen? Well, as we go back and revisit the story, what we find is there were a series of steps that culminated in that huge mistake. And it all started when he began to follow Jesus at a distance. He was no longer walking in fellowship with Jesus. And by the way, he wasn't walking in community with the other disciples. His walk, it got hindered and hampered, and that led to him standing at the fire of the very men and women who were responsible for arresting Jesus. So he walked the wrong way. His walk wasn't what it should be and that led to him standing in the wrong place, surrounded by the wrong company. And then when a young servant girl said, hey, I recognize you. You were there with Jesus. You're one of his followers. That's when he made that fatal mistake and denied his Lord. But the thing I want you to see in all that is how there was a, a progression, or perhaps a better word for it would be a digression. He went from walking not in the way that he should to standing with the people that he shouldn't have been standing with, and before long he was sitting in the seat of the scornful, just like Psalm 1 tells us. And by the way, I want you to note that that's always how backsliding works. It never happens in an instant. It's almost always a slow, gradual process. You may even want to jot this next sentence down. Big sins always start with small compromises. I've talked with a number of people over the years who have just made a mess of things with their life and and their family situation is in shambles and we're sitting there in my office and in one way, shape, or another, They'll say something to me along the lines of, how did this happen? It wasn't supposed to play out like this. How did I end up here? And inevitably, as we go back and begin to retrace the series of choices that they made that ended them up in my office, what we find is that there was not always just one big mistake, but more often than not, it was a series of small decisions, small compromises along the way that led to the big Mistake. you see nobody ever sets out to become an addict or to end up in jail or to to ruin their family but what happens is we just get off the path that God has laid out for us. You see Satan, he's smart. He's not going to try to get you to turn your back on God 180 degrees overnight. He's way too smart for that. So instead what he focuses his energy and efforts on trying to get us to do is he tries to just get us off the path that we're on by just maybe one or two degrees. And he knows that it might not seem like a big deal at the time, but over the course of a lifetime, if he can get us off track, the trajectory of our lives will take us further and further and further away from Jesus. So what might not seem like a big deal in the moment, over the course of a lifetime, can lead you so far off of the path that God has laid out for you. And I have an illustration of this. Um, I remember reading one time that for every one degree that a plane is off on its intended target, for every one degree that it's off, it's gonna miss its landing site by 92 feet for every mile that is flown. So what that means is over the course of 60 miles, that pilot will miss his landing spot by one mile, which, I mean, in the scheme of things, doesn't seem like that much. But the further you go, the more off track you get. So if you were flying from JFK to LAX, you would miss your landing spot by some 40 miles. And then it gets even worse if you go further. Like if you were to take off at one point on the equator, and you were off by just one degree, and you were to circumnavigate the globe, by the time you got back to your starting point, you would have missed your landing spot by 500 miles. And we could keep extrapolating that out. I mean, if you're trying to get to the moon and you're one degree off, just think of how far off you'd be. It just gets worse with time, which is why we need to stay on the right path. We need to know that we're on the right path. But how can we do that? We need a map. We need a a code, a key, a guide, a light, a north star. If only God had given us something like that, right? (laughs) Oh, wait. He has. It's right here it's his word. What did the psalmist say? Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How shall a young man cleanse his way, the Bible says, by taking heed according to thy word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word of God is the key. It's it's our it's our compass, it's our guide, it's our north star, it's our light, it's, it's everything. Which is why the psalmist says the blessed one, the blessed man, the blessed woman, is one who delights in the law of the Lord, verse 2, and meditates in his law both day and night. And this, friends, is the key. If you want to live the blessed life, then here's the defining characteristic of that man, of that woman. They are men, they are women who delight in the word of God. It's it's funny, the Bible tells us how we ought to handle the word. And in various points, we're told to study the word and to read the word and to search the word and defend the word and to hold the word. We're even told to desire the word and eat the word. But here, I love what the, the psalmist says when he says we're also to delight in it. Now, delight is, is really a delightful word, isn't it? To delight in something is to find supreme joy or value in that thing. And we all have things that we delight in, don't we? I mean, couples who are in love delight in one another's company. Sports fans delight in their favorite team when they win a game. Grandparents delight in their grandkids. And I know that I delight in a perfectly cooked medium rare eight ounce sirloin steak, delicious. So we all have these things that we delight in, but let me ask you something. Do you delight in this book? Is it your joy to wake up and read it every single day? The truth is, if you were to ask that question to most people out there and they were to answer, answer honestly, sorry, they would have to say, no, I don't really delight in God's word. For most people, they just dismiss it altogether. It's pushed to the periphery of their lives. They write it off as irrelevant or unnecessary or unimportant. And that's so sad. But what's even sadder is the fact that the same thing happens in the lives of Christians. Christians. Those who claim to be followers of Christ and yet they don't have a relationship with God through his word. Jesus is the living word and so to to know him is to, to know him through his revelation that he's given to us through his word. And if we want to know God's heart, if we want to know his mind, if we want to know his will, then we've got to open this book. Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament and the Lord said through him that the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Think about that, a famine for the word of the Lord. I believe we're living in such days and such times. I was reading a, an article in the Huffington Post that said that while 88% of Americans say, claim to own at least one Bible and another 80% said that they believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God, only 57% of those people said they read the Bible with any regularity. In fact, most in that question there said they only read the Bible on four times a year or less, which is just mind-boggling. I mean, it's like the Word of God is, is food, but there's this famine in the land and we've never had greater access to the Word of God. We're like people starving who make their home in a supermarket. Imagine you were to go to Costco and you met somebody and they lived in Costco. What a great thing, right? And this guy lives in Costco, but every time you go there every week, week after week, you notice that this friend of yours is getting skinnier and skinnier. Their cheeks are sunken in. Their eyes become these like holes in their head. Their their arms are thinning out and their ribs are protruding and you notice that this person is starving. You would say to such a person, what are you doing? You're starving and you live at Costco? There's a guy handing out free samples right over there. Go get some. I mean, they sell a hot dog and a drink combo for a buck 50. That's like the best deal anywhere. Can I get an amen? How could you possibly starve in Costco? Similarly, as people who claim to be Christians, how could we be starving for the word of the Lord when it's right there. We have access to it un I like what Jeremiah the prophet said about his relationship to the word. He said, Your words were found, and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's Jeremiah 15, 16. Some people say, Well, I would read the Bible more, but I just don't have the time, which I say is hogwash. Because the truth of the matter is, we all make time for the things that matter most to us. Others say, well, I can't understand it. And again, I would point you to the immense resources that are available to us online. I mean, just Bible study tools and, and, and resources and, and teachings that are there to equip you. And others say, well, uh, which version of the Bible should I read? I mean, I can't pick one, so I won't read any. And I, I always say to that, you know which Bible of the version, version of the Bible you should get? The one that you'll read. That's the best version to get. And it's important that we don't stop there. Don't just read the Word. Don't be a hearer of the Word and not a doer of the Word. you got to take it in and assimilate it and meditate on it and feast on it and then go out and do it. Years ago, I stumbled upon the following description of God's Word. The author is unknown, but here's what he said. The Bible, it reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is gained, and heaven is opened, hell is disclosed. Christ is its grand object, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It shall rule the memory, fill the heart, guide the feet, read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life, will be opened in the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, promises the highest reward for labor, and condemns all who trifle with its sacred contents. Man, how beautiful is that? That's the heart, the attitude that all of us need to c- cultivate in our lives concerning this book. And, and and that's what takes it from being dull drudgery and turns it into a delightful Just soup for the soul. Read the word of God. Now, those are the options. You can choose to walk in the way of the wicked, or you can delight in the law of the Lord and thus walk down the road of the righteous. Now, what will be the result, we want to know. Well, that's what the psalmist goes on to describe for us in the rest of the chapter. He says, the person who delights in the law of the Lord, the one who reads the word, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. They'll be like a tree. Now, the imagery here of something that is sure and strong and steady. If you see a big oak tree, that thing is not getting moved. I mean, it's got roots that go down deep, and that allows it to weather whatever storms may come its way. But you'll notice that this tr- tree that he describes is not only strong and well watered, but it's also fruitful. Now the fruit here it, it speaks of a couple of different things. First of all, on a personal level, the fruit in your life from reading the Word of God, you'll you'll be joyful. You'll be more loving, more. Patient, more kind. You'll be filled to overflowing with abundance of goodness and godlike character will form in you. These are the fruits of the Spirit as described to us there in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 down through around verse 24 or 5. So we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We're loving. We have joy. We have peace. We have the presence of the Spirit. And beyond that, on a on, on, on more like a ministerial level, the fruit in our lives speaks of effectiveness in ministry. You'll be fruitful in the in the sense is you'll have an effect with other people. When you share with them, they'll listen. They'll want to know what you have to say because there'll be something in you that draws them to you and they'll want to hear from you about this good God who has a plan for their lives. And it'll give you a platform from which you can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and see others brought into the kingdom of God. And and that's why we're here. That's why we're on this earth. God put you where he put you for a reason and for a purpose. Satan wants you dead. Satan is a thief and he came to rob, kill, and destroy. But you know what? You're still alive and because you're not dead, that means God's not done. Somebody say amen. And he's not done with you. He has a plan and he has a purpose for your life. He wants you to be fruitful and effective in ministry. He wants fruit to abound your account. He wants others to come into his family and take part in his kingdom because of the word that gets shared through you. But you can't share what you don't have. You can't give what you haven't first received. And so we've got to root ourselves in the word. We've got to feed on the word. We've got to know the word so that we can then share the word with others. Then we'll be like that tree that prospers in everything it does. You'll have like the Midas touch, the golden touch. Standing in contrast to that, not so, he says, the wicked, verse 4. They're like chaff that gets blown away. Now, This picture of chaff, well, it harkens back to an ancient practice in those times when you were harvesting wheat. You would take the wheat in its husk up to the top of a high hill where there was a strong wind, and then you would have a mallet or animals walk over it or trample on it, or you would take that mallet and beat the wheat so that it was separated from the husk, the edible part from the shell. And then you would take a big blanket and all the wheat on top of it, and you would throw that wheat up into the air. And the chaff or the the husk that's unedible, it serves no purpose. That would be blown away by the wind and the heavier wheat would fall back down because it's substantive. It's got something to it. And what he's telling us here is the way of the wicked, man, those people, they have no substance. It seems like they've got life, but eventually they just... They're blown away, they never leave their mark, and ultimately the way of the wicked leads to destruction and death. This is something that so many of us know all too well. In the end, this path diverges, right? We come to this fork in the road, and in verse six we get the conclusion of the two paths. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So which path are we going to walk down? The the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Now, obviously, all of us at this point would say, I want to choose the road of the righteous. It's clear cut. It, It is as clear as the nose on my face. It's as clear as day. I want to walk down the road of the righteous. We have the two choices laid out before us. And we'd all say, I want to walk down the road of the righteous. And yet, none of us does. At various points and to various degrees, we all turn off of it. We get on detours. The Bible says that we're like sheep who go astray. And every one of us, the Bible says, has turned aside. As it turns out, wanting to be on the right path and wanting to walk with Jesus in lockstep isn't enough to actually accomplish that. So that leaves us in quite the predicament, doesn't it? but ultimately it points us to our need for a savior. You see, friends, this is why Jesus came. We, as badly as we want to, we can't walk down this road of the righteous. It's a narrow road that, man, as hard as we try, we can't do it on our own, which is why Jesus came. He came to walk the path that we couldn't walk. He's the only one who perfectly lived out this description of the blessed man or woman. He never walked in the counsel of the ungodly. He never stood in the way of sinners. He never sat in the seat of the scornful. He always delighted in the law of the Lord. He said at one point, I always do those things that please the Father. And he's the only one who could say that. He lived the life that we could never live. And then he went and died the death that we all deserve. Why? So that he could bring us into his family and give us the gift of eternal life. And here's what all of that means for us. It means that this road of the righteous and the way that you walk on it, it's not by trying to keep the rules and it's not by buckling down and clenching your fists and gritting your teeth and determining in your heart that I'm going to do it this time. The way that you walk the road of the righteous is by connecting yourself to Jesus and being hitched to his wagon. You see, the way is not just a road that we walk down, it's a relationship that we step into. And I say that because of what Jesus said. In John chapter 14, he said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Whoever comes to the Father must do so through me. There's no other way to heaven except through me. You want to walk on the way, then you walk with Jesus. It's not about keeping the rules, it's about walking in relationship. It's about trusting Him. It's about staying connected to Him. It's about following Him and loving Him and knowing Him. It's all about Jesus, friends. And that's why we come to this book, because here in We are given this revelation, this picture of who Jesus is. The whole story of the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, all of the 66 books and all of the chapters and all of the stories, they ultimately point us to him. They're all about him. They find their fulfillment in him. And so we look to Jesus. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Father, for this word and this time together And I, for one, am convicted by this this powerful psalm, Lord. And I know many of my brothers who are, are listening to this are feeling the same conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so in a fresh way, Lord, may each one of us surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus. Yet again, if we have already done so, we need Thee. Every hour we need Thee. God, I pray that You would... Take our hearts that are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it and bind them to thine own, God. Help us to see the error of our way. And where we've gotten off track, Lord, bring us back to the foot of the cross. That you are the way, Jesus. And if the Spirit of God is convicting you right now, then you just say this prayer after me. I'll say a prayer and you can repeat it in your own heart. Or you can pray it out loud and just solidify in your own life this moment as as a turning point that you're connecting yourself to Jesus. Just say, dear Jesus, I'm so sorry for the things that I've done wrong. I'm so sorry for turning aside and getting off the way. I brought pain to myself. I've brought pain to others. And I've brought pain to you. But I thank you, Jesus, that you're a forgiving God, that you're a loving God, that you restore lost sinners, that you go after lost sheep, that you said, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's me. Forgive me, Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to walk with you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity of sharing with you again. I pray God's blessings on you. May you experience the Lord's favor as you continue to make choices to honor God and to live your best life. God bless.
0: Thanks for choosing the Teen Challenge of Southern California podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, do it today. It's easy. Go to wherever you get your podcasts, click on our icon, and hit subscribe. A new podcast filled with godly encouragement, spiritual instruction, and teaching comes out every week. God bless you today.